Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every week to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. Glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. August has arrived, or it's just about to have arrived as we're recording this, and we haven't spoken for a couple of weeks, and I know that there's just zero happening in our lives and in the world, so... Um, we can just skip the kind of check-in. Uh, just kidding. How are skip you guys the doing? pleasantries. <laughs> Straight <laughs> to business. Pl- <laughs> What's happening? What's going on? Uh, we just got back from a week in Mississippi with my parents, the kids and I. So that, uh, I know. So Josh could get some work done. So that was uh, that was really fun. We went. We're big fans of the HGTV show Hometown, set in Laurel, Mississippi. So we made a pilgrimage to Laurel, Mississippi, uh, which my kids are super jazzed about. And I spent $20 on a cute headband at the store. What do you think that we're going to have a generation of kids that is like preternaturally interested in home renovations? Because so many young kids I know watch HGTV. My kids are obsessed with like that uh, get out of my room show where they like make you a new bedroom and things. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to have to try that on Marshall. See if like, he's mom, interested. Mom, we really should need some shiplap in here. My daughter says things like, this is terrible to say out loud, but like we'll take walks in the neighborhood and she will like throw shade on other people's houses. And then she'll be like, <laughs> she'll be like, we're porch people. And I'm like, honey, we're living a rectory in a house we don't own people, but that's nice. <laughs> we're porch people. What does that even mean? We're porch people. I don't know. I mean, she's watched too much HGTV. <laughs> yeah, I know, because people come into those and they're and like, they say things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, we're well, porch you know, people. We're really backyard people. Yeah. <laughs> um, Rutger, what's with you, man? How South Florida are you? Uh, I just don't even know what to say. I'm in the, you know, I'm in the epicenter. Uh, things mm-hmm. are pretty crazy you know still like 10,000 plus new cases every day and high infection rates and we're trying to get settled in we've been here for about a month I guess um yeah I've been watching a lot of Netflix uh, relationship reality television for some reason which I never watch but I must I think I just miss people and Mm -hmm. their you know um eccentricities and how interesting they are and so I've been watching these uh television shows and so which actually my wife and I have been um, enjoying but I'll just say like uh, working hard and coming home to a very uh, noisy house with our three-year-old just keeping things interesting and yelling at Alexa constantly um, mm. trying you know <laughs> Alexa play play into the unknown um, over and over <laughs> again <laughs> and, um, putting random things on our shopping list my wife will go and she's like why is there a skateboard in my Amazon shopping cart it's because Marshall <laughs> told Alexa he wanted a skateboard. Um, preparing <laughs> preparing for our oldest son to go to college. Um, wondering if our middle son, who's going to be a sophomore, will actually make any friends at any point. Um, just kind of waiting for school to begin. I don't know. Just waiting. Yeah. Been talking a lot about doing... Been doing a waiting. big series in church about waiting, which mm. is a surprisingly prominent biblical theme once you latch on to it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's a lot oh, of waiting yes. in the Bible. Um, so that's not been... just Advent. It's right. Like, no, no. Like, you know, right. 400 years or, yeah. um, you know, 13 years in slavery in prison, if you're Joseph or 40 years, if you're Moses in the wilderness. And, um, so I'm okay, but it's, it's, uh, as you guys know, it's just, it's a very day to day existence kind of time, especially when you're in a place where there's seemingly no end in sight to this uh to this pandemic so that's how i'm doing that's a full answer (laughs) kate Kate and i have been uh we've been binging this show alone which is a survivalist drama on the history channel exactly uh it's not that this is like they keep calling it the super bowl of survivalist shows and i've never been a fan of any survivalist shows but maybe we're something about it resonates because you get to see people who are really having to kind of you know find their own food and and it's for whom it's not just day to day but moment to moment and i don't know it's it's a super intense show um 
and we've had a lot of fun with that. I was a little surprised. We were just away for a couple of weeks, um, which was a you know a, a blessing to you know be anywhere beyond the four walls that I tend to look at. And the kids, um, we talked about it last time, but the beach being such a um, the fact that it's fairly safe and it just pummels these boys for hours and hours and wears their energy out. It just feels like a, a real gift from God at this point in, in time. Um, Sarah, uh, RJ sent this out right before we, we got on the call, but a couple of weeks ago you said that we are two weeks away from everyone starting smoking again. And uh, the Wall Street Journal, Jennifer Maloney, reported that cigarette smoking is making a major comeback during the coronavirus pandemic. So I just want to say this is the one instance <laughs> in which I'm okay with being called a prophet. <laughs> a prophet of cigarettes. So prophetic. So prophetic. I know. I have such prop- a prophetic voice, you, you guys. <laughs> Such a truth speaker. She says that Americans are smoking more during the coronavirus pandemic because they are spending less on travel and entertainment, have more opportunities to light up. They're also switching back to traditional cigarettes from vaping devices in the wake of federal restrictions on e-cigarette flavors. Um, If smoking didn't cause cancer, which is a major caveat, I would be a (laughs) huge proponent of it. I think it's the best thing ever. It's like you get to sit and talk, and it's It's a bonding experience, you know, relaxing. And what what do they say? You finally have something to do with your hands. You know, you had that Jack Donaghy. What do I do with my hands? It just looks so cool. You look cool. It does (laughs) sort of look cool. Yeah. Um, But Sarah, so how does it feel to have gotten this one right? I mean... You know, I, it is funny, like, um, that I can be right about vices. This is like, this is like the only thing I'll be right about is like predicting people's vices because that's where my own head is. Um, I mean, I'm glad people aren't vaping. That seems to be killing people when they were 21 years old. I don't know. Is that a bright spot? <laughs> possibly possibly it's funny kids get such well my kids don't ever see people smoke um which is so funny to me because growing up everyone smoked um and they don't even really understand what cigarettes are and but they get this like really strong messaging about cigarettes you know at school and um we were recently um at a socially distanced uh, situation at a parishioner's house and my son saw an ashtray and we had to have this conversation that I'm so thankful we're able to have that just because people smoke doesn't mean that they're bad people. And we talked about like the powerlessness of addiction. Mm. Um, so maybe I was just like prepping him for the world of cigarettes. He's about to encounter. <laughs> it's funny so though, like how moralistic it is at school about, is- you know what I mean? Like that's how that's almost, they almost say like, you're bad if you smoke and it's like, well, I mean like, that's not really true. It means you're powerless over addiction. Um, anyway. And you're looking for a little bit of comfort to get little, by. Yeah. 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 You, you need yeah. a, life is hard and you want something to take hard. the edge off. Yeah. No, I remember one of my kids, we were reading some book at like a relative's house that was specifically, it was like an anti-smoking book for kids. It started off very nicely and it turned the corner and suddenly one of the kids is like smoking a cigarette and my four-year-old is like, no, not tobacco. Yeah. And you're like, there's you're nothing like... worse in the world. <laughs> Than tobacco, except You'll die not recycling, because they also get a heavy moral That's dose. Right. That's right. Like, you have to recycle that. I'm like, it's I mean, gonna no. sit in a warehouse. It'll never end up recycled. Okay. That's what my wife says. She's like, it's not going anywhere, RJ. No, I could not g- agree more. Like, we'll be in the car, and my kids will see someone smoking, and they'll be like, <gasps> it's 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 smoking and bullies for them. Those yeah. are the they, that has come across loud and clear that those are no nos. Or like watching right. Netflix, it'll be like rated mature for depictions of tobacco. And right. you're like, what? Have you noticed that? It's like, oh, wait, yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's a rating thing now? Anyway, anyway, be that as it may, that's one thing that's happening during Corona. Another thing that's happening that uh, appeared in Christianity Today uh, a couple weeks ago by Bradford Wilcox and Elisa Elhag, uh, which is COVID-19 is apparently killing the soulmate model of marriage. Marriage, The marriage rate was already dropping prior to COVID-19, this report says, hitting a record low in 2018. The current recession will drive the marriage rate down even further because couples are reluctant to tie the knot when their economic prospects are uncertain. The ongoing retreat from marriage, coupled with economic strain and falling fertility, means that by the mid-21st century, millions of Americans will be what the Chinese call, quote, bare branches. Oh, my God. 
I know. <laughs> Men and women without kin. Gosh, gosh, the Chinese really have a, have a way of making Little you feel great. Bare branches. <laughs> they call it like it yeah. is. They call it like it is. Uh, however, in the midst of all this tumult, there might just be a silver lining. The soulmate model of marriage will most likely fade, and a family first model of marriage will emerge. The family first marital environment will be stronger, more stable, and more likely to offer a secure harbor for children. Uh, they go on to say that the soulmate model of marriage, which took root in the 1970s, rests on the idea that wedlock is primarily about an intense emotional or romantic connection between two people that should last only as long as that connection remains happy, fulfilling, and life-giving to the self. We see this soulmate story in thousands of songs, hundreds of Hollywood movies, and just as many self-help books. This popular myth is part of why men and women go into marriage with extremely unrealistic expectations, and these expectations then set them up for devastating disappointment and often divorce. However, in the darker and more difficult world that we now face, one marked by economic uncertainty, insecurity, uh, ongoing disease, and governmental impotence, this soulmate myth will become less realistic and less appealing for most people. Spouses will come to see how little they can depend on the government and the market and how much they have to lean on one another to nurture and, and school their children, tend their garden or home, launch a home business, or help care for an older parent. In other words, they will relearn all the ways that marriage is about much more than the fluctuating feelings between two people. Um, I would first want to say, uh, because it just it just popped into my head, but my brother and his girlfriend just got engaged last mm. week. Yay! He proposed to her in the middle of a pandemic, which Congrats. is... I just, Aaron? I, yeah, I just... Aaron and Ashley are engaged, which we're so excited for them. Um, and feels very brave of them right now. I I mean, I totally agree with this. It's funny, you know, uh, I'm one of my summer reads right now is um, about the 14th century... <laughs> Because I'm endlessly but wait, the, fat. the Holocaust didn't take place in the 14th century. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was, there, was, there was there another genocide? Was there another genocide? But you know the uh, gosh, I wish I could remember that something. A distant mirror, I think, is the name of it. Um, but but it's uh, it's like 800 pages long. It goes into a lot of detail, but. You know, it, it talks about marriage in this really practical, interesting way. And it did make me actually think about um, how marriage has had to shift in the midst of this pandemic. And um, I don't know. One thing I want to say, and maybe this will sound really dark and bitter, and, and I don't mean it to sound that way. But the other thing that I think kind of has to die with the pandemic is not just the soulmate model of marriage, but it's also the partnership model of marriage. Because that's just not how it's working out, frankly. And I'm not just speaking for my own household. I'm, you know, I just see article after article about how professional women are struggling with th this. You know what I mean? Because and I've said this one here before, but I'll say it again. Like we're, we're bearing the brunt of worrying about education. We're bearing the brunt of worrying about getting food on the table, like, and we're working. And so, you know, this, I mean, I really have been, a, a frankly, thankful that in my own marriage, I've had to be pretty honest about the fact that like, when we were going to have children, I was like, it's going to be 50, 50, like he's changing half the diapers, all this stuff. And then you have babies and all they're interested in is, is mom, you know? And, and even now, you know, I've got a nine-year-old and a six-year-old and they've regressed so much. I mean, it's like some days I feel like I have a toddler again, cause they'll do that thing. Well, they're, they will wander the house mama, mama, mama. And then they'll open the door and they'll say, I just wondered where you were. Mm. And they only do that to me. And that's not because I have like a sexist marriage. It's not because my husband doesn't do stuff. But for me, the pandemic has also shown that like there are certain in, the, in those we've talked about this before, those those um, sort of responsibilities are going to fall in different households based on different gender lines. But it has like really struck me how sort of traditionally they fall in in my own household and frankly in a lot of the households of friends of mine. I think we're all a little actually taken aback by that. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I wonder about these families who've always or couples who've always been like, we've got an even partnership and blah, 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 blah. And then like the pandemic hits and you're like, OK, who still has a job? 
who's making more money? How are we going to make that? How are we going to get through this without killing each other? And the, the last thing I want to say about this is I think for me, this has made marriage more like who are you willing to suffer with? Like who, who can be a co-sufferer with you in this? Who can, who can you like laugh with in this? Um, you know, at things that are like really actually pretty bleak, like, I don't know. And maybe again, that's my own marriage, but I take so much comfort in that, um, with Josh. So I don't know. So the Netflix shows I've been watching, uh, which I finished Tell one, <clears throat> I will because it all, it fits in. One is, um, married at first sight. Oh my God. This? I love that show. It's so good. Didn't and we write so... something about that? I think we did. And it got tweeted. Uh, yeah. It was by like one of the, the contestants. first season by <laughs> one of the contestants. It was That's very so exciting. RJ. Only, only season nine is on Netflix, but Jamie and I watched all of season nine and we just found it to be so much better more helpful, more insightful. I mean, this is a low bar, but clearly than like The Bachelor, which is ridiculous. Because of course, The Bachelor is obsessed with the soulmate model of marriage. Whereas in Marriage at First Sight, you've got two people who literally, they've been matched by quote unquote, you know, experts for what that's worth. Um, But the first time they meet is when they're married. And then to see them walk through all of these marital issues like family of origin and expectations and finances and, um, you know, uh, uh, sex and and bringing their baggage into it. And um, honestly, it was one of the best shows I've ever watched on marriage. And I'm tempted to like, you know, make it assigned viewing for any couple that I marry in the future just to be like, this is what it is. Um, And I remember one of the characters, one of the men was talking with a friend of his about this woman, you know, that he was married to now. And and he was like, is this going to work? Is this not going to work? And there's some things we need to work on and ways I'm hoping she'll change. And and he, they were both actually Christians. And the guy, he was, his friend was also a Christian. And his friend who was married said, now, what would you say if I told you that none of those things will ever change? What would you do if she never changed? And I was like, yes. That that's just mm. so helpful and insightful. Like how do you learn to live with another person and not hope that they'll be accept them as they are and not hope yes. that they'll someday be different? Um, so that's one that's one show that I felt like has been so helpful and totally counter and opposite to the soulmate model of marriage, right? Like tr- they're trying to find love. But they're so desperate. They're just like, can I find someone who might be willing to take a chance with me? Mm. Right? Which is really what marriage should be, right? Yeah. Can I find someone who's willing to take a chance? And can we grow together in love and learn to accept each other? And, and um, so I, I love that. I, I thought it had to be very helpful. The second show I've been watching is, we just started watching this, is um, Love on the Spectrum, which is about uh, people who have autism, Asperger's, things like that, who are looking for love, basically. Um, and it's refreshing because of how simple it is. It, you know, whereas the soulmate model of marriage is concerned with so many questions, you know, what is he or she going to look like? And, and are we going to be c- compatible in the background and the future? But here it's just like, do you share anything in common? What do you share? In, are you both into anime? Yeah. Are you both into <laughs> video games? Are you, you know, it's just simple. And I think that's helpful because in my experience, when it comes to marriage, there's really only two things. Do you like spending time together? And are you hot for each other? Yeah. And that's about it. You know, I, 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 I sort of feel like that's about it. Because the, if, if you can say you just enjoy spending time together and you're physically attracted to each other, that's going to carry you through a lot of things. And that in, in my experience, there, there, are moments when, there are moments when you do have those kind of soul matey type feelings for your spouse, but they only happen kind of when you don't expect them to. Or it doesn't become an expectation of the relationship. You know, if you can just kind of enjoy each other's company, let each other be, keep your expectations low, stay honest, you know. Um, anyway, I, I thought this interesting was this article was interesting. I did think it was a little a little too sure of itself. Like who the heck knows what's gonna happen? Like yeah. give me a break. It's a prediction um, thing, yeah. But but anything that takes us towards a more um, what do I want to say, open, like honest. Um, and, and humble approach to relationships and specifically marital relationships is, is welcome because man, the expectations that we put on the marriage relationship are just crushing and no relationship can live up to that except for when it does, but it's always a surprise. Well, and the other thing I would say is it's always in the midst of great suffering. 
right? Like, I don't know. I think part of like the vulnerability creates intimacy. Soulmate stuff is so interesting to me because it's so positivist. But really, like those times when we feel deeply connected to our spouse is like usually when there's deep suffering, like, and yeah, we're willing to, are hard. to cross that chasm mm-hmm. towards one another. So. Yeah. You know, I'll just put it on cards on the table. Like I've got now five, five couples that are not distant from myself and my wife that are getting divorced. Like oh that, oh we're not, that we're not getting divorced at the beginning of COVID or maybe one of them was starting that process. And, uh, you know, I remember we read that David Brooks piece about what happens during pandemics and how there's, it's not that there's necessarily a ton of babies being born, but there's a lot of emotional movement. So there's estrangements and reunions. There are marriages and divorces. There are epiphanies and breakdowns. And, um, I've just, I'm, I'm watching that and so much, there's so much uh, acceleration and uh, maybe the, the pressure or the extra time that you're spending together or the ways that t- two people react differently to uh, circumstances outside their control, which as we know can be very alienating um, or just the therapy sheer is tough right now. amount of yeah. time. It's tough to do therapy. It's tough yeah. to do therapy. You don't have your, for if you're a church person, you don't have your church community to kind of help you or at least not in, not in the way that it normally would be available. And so I, 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 I do wonder about this. I think that any um, shift away from the soulmate myth is, as you say, RJ, a very, um, is a, it's actually a good development. And yet at the same time, you, I want there to be an increase in love in the world. And uh, that's part of that's the right, curse I, I don't, of this I don't wanna, whole thing. I don't want to be a Puritan about this, right? I don't want to exit. I don't want to have romantic love and, and that kind of, I think that does happen actually still yeah. in marriage. Hopefully, you know, you still, yeah. you still have those moments where you feel that way about your spouse and that, that kind of intense love is possible. But if you're expecting it to be that way all the time. Boy. Well, this is kind of linked to something that came up, went up on Mockingbird recently by one of our, uh, really our wonderful new contributors named David Clay wrote an article called Freedom to be Bored. And I think, uh, you know, this is a consensus. I was talking to uh, Todd Brewer, who, who manages our website right now, and he says, you know, I've gotten like four uh, submissions this past week about boredom. That's so funny. And, uh, and I was talking to someone who didn't have children and was saying, gosh, I, you know, I'm so bored. I wish I did have children. And I said, no, you, no, you no, don't. No, you don't. Um, <laughs> but oh, they, <laughs> the boredom thing, you know, we, we, we've we, made a huge mistake. We started, we started in panic mode. We went into fatigue mode. And now are we kind of in boredom mode or uh, let's figure out a way to entertain ourselves possibly Extremist by, you know, mode. destroying our life in some way. Uh, way or uh, getting divorced the um but this is freedom to be bored by david clay and he starts out with something that in mid-june slate confirmed uh, a massive uptick in recreational explosives all across the country (laughs) red state and blue state the nypd for instance (laughs) get this received a 920 percent increase in fireworks related complaints for the month of may that's crazy. <laughs> not July, May. <laughs> Just May, because why not? Uh, David writes, it's not terribly difficult to figure out the cause. In the words of Julie Heckman, executive director of the American Pyrotechnics Association, I'm glad something like that exists. Um, she says, I think the general public, due to COVID, is just itching to do something. <laughs> I love that a woman is the head of this. I, know, I like, didn't see it to, coming. Way to break the glass ceiling, Julie. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, David writes, in this case, that something is waging the war on boredom with a vengeance. Related to this war on boredom, is a widespread cultural idea of following your passion. I say ideal, but it really feels more like a moral imperative. Passion as both an object of intense desire and the inner drive that overcomes all obstacles in pursuit of that object is seemingly necessary for a worthy life. Just watch any commercial for athleisure. Um, Prolonged boredom which is the signature symptom of passionlessness, is therefore not just a heavy psychological burden, it's also a punishment, as if unused potential were rising up in judgment against the sinner. Hence the proverb, only boring people get bored. In other words, boredom can come to feel sinful as well as unpleasant. 
I mean, if, if secular folks can get so energized by their various temporal projects, how could we Christians who are engaged in a cosmic war between God and Satan with souls of humanity hanging in the balance have the temerity to be bored? Well, ask any veteran. War can be incredibly boring. But more to the point, I submit that boredom is a useful tool in God's chest, particularly for us first world Christians. That's because the contemporary endeavor of justification by passion is an attractive one. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength, writes Isaiah, including the strength to say no to the bewildering variety of substitutes for God's free promise of justification, his declaration that we are absolutely enough in Christ. Insofar as these stretches of boredom teach us how to wait on the Lord, they are his gracious work in our lives. It's a great piece of writing. Yeah, it is. You guys, you guys bored? I think I feel the weight of my children being bored. I think that's like when I look at them, I feel guilty as to how bored they are. Um, yes. Does that, yeah, does that resonate with you? Like, I'm just like, oh my gosh, I feel so bad. They don't like, seem to mind, but I, but I do. Yeah, they, they, they seem to be okay with it, but it is like, gosh, what, what's going to be the consequences of the amount of screen time they're having right now? Yeah, exactly. No, I, I, it's it's a weird thing. And I'll do this thing where I'll try to like reclaim control. That's this week. Mm. This week I've decided to reclaim control. So there's like less awesome. time. Let me know how that goes. Oh my gosh. We've already yelled at each other this morning. So it's going great. Thanks for asking. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I mean, Dave and I talked a bit about this just because um, <laughs> we know we know some people who've made some really bad decisions lately and and they almost seems like bored like did, like like please don't of, talk about me that way on the podcast yeah, it's, it's just uh, like it's 100 percent rj but like professionally weird decisions or just like um you know i i definitely there's like a whole lot of people googling their like high school boyfriend um it's just yeah people are engaging on social media in ways they may not have before except yeah. for you you're off the social media i well I'm, I'm trying to be off of it yeah i i just i think there's i think there's a lot of danger there i don't know it's um I think there's some danger in the boredom. There's definitely danger in the boredom. I think that uh, the, that's the nature of the sinner to try to um, combust. And uh, yeah. in these moments, is how do I uh, how do I create some drama, or how do I create some future? How do I uh, generate some sort of excitement when there's so little? Uh, at least. I've talked about this in terms of nostalgia because that's mm -hmm. been my coping mechanism, but. When you Obviously. when you look at the future, I know when you look at the future and it's it's neither it's totally opaque, yeah, or at, at best, at worst, it's the the doom scrolling phenomenon where it just seems like the world is ending. You go to the past, and that can be a um, a fun thing when we talk about garbage pail kids and the return mm -hmm. of the far side, which happened this past week, which is pretty yeah. cool. Um, but it can also be then then the, then the longing for the past or the the excitement in the past can can take on a really sadistic um, and even imprisoning uh, element. And I, I I see that, and I wonder if we'll see more of that as time goes on. And this has also been the week where where sports have kind of. The attempt to restart Major League Baseball. There's some. There's a, baseball is the most boring sport on the face of the earth. But there's so. some pictures of like uh, the the Atlantic ran a uh, a photo essay of like these are these are tough times to be a sports mascot, and it's just pictures of the mascots like in these empty stadiums just walking around, <laughs> and it feels like it feels like those Garfield cartoons where all of the the the, the responses were taken out, or it's like a, a Snoopy thing where it's just depressing, oh. and uh, you wonder if. When, when the first uh, sports mascot to really, uh, you know, go postal is going to be. I hope, right. I hope it doesn't happen. But um, I don't know. RJ, what else do you think about boredom? Well, I'm, I'm definitely not bored. I'm tired. And I wish, you know, this is a, a moment where people have, as you're saying, Dave, either way too much silence in their household or none whatsoever. And we're yeah. definitely on the none whatsoever end of the spectrum. Yeah. And it's, it's exhausting. And we've, we've kind of given into it, you know, like we work our day, we have our dinner. Um, we, we started, you know, we do have a pool, as we said before. We started, like, we watched the nightly news at 6.30 in the pool because um, we have an outdoor uh, TV, which is which is nice, which I highly recommend. Um, anyway, if you, anyway. These, these southern Flor Florida rectories are just... We had it yeah. well, we in Texas. A different breed, one, everybody. We had it in Texas, oh, and I brought word. it. That was that was one of the first things I mounted. I was like, we're put, we, I don't care where we're putting the TV on the outside. 
Um, and then we kind of just get in bed and Marshall gets on his iPad and we watch uh, relationship Netflix television until we fall asleep. So that's the pattern we've fallen into. Um, what it made me think of was I've known quite a few, and I was surprised at first by this, but this has happened so many times that I think it's a thing. I've known quite a few people, and men specifically, because they were older, who when they retired, they like Im immediately either like had a heart attack or became an alcoholic. Yeah. You know, because they couldn't deal with not having something to do. Yeah. Which is also kind of the Steven Tyler syndrome, right? Mm -hmm. Like when you're no longer Aerosmith and touring the world, you, you become a drug addict type mm -hmm. thing. And then I guess, but then I guess you become Aerosmith again. Um, but this is not a new thing that, that boredom and, and not having a sen something to do or not knowing what to do is difficult. And it is tough for me to think about what is, what is life going to be like when my kids leave home and, you know, retirement's a long way off, but, um, yeah, that's something we you know people different people have faced <clears throat> in our culture for a long time. But um. I mean, we've been doing this basically for six months. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, like we're entering into the sixth month, right? Like this is like for half a year. I mean, I did not have either child home this long after I gave birth. <laughs> like it's really you know it there. It's just so unprecedented that um, I don't know. I really pray that the marriages in our congregation can withstand this. I pray that, um, you know, I feel for our single people who haven't, some of them who've been really careful, haven't really had physical contact for half a year. Like yeah. it's, that's just, it's just a lot. Um, I did think about that this week cause I was, I was feeling there's a certain level of guilt, right? Cause everyone is also saying like, gosh, if we have to live through a pandemic, like, thank God for Wi-Fi, thank God for Amazon Prime and grocery delivery and, you know, all, you know, all these sort of um, things, you know, for a certain segment of the population. And I was feel, uh, feeling guilty. And then I did think of um, the loss of relational contact is just so hard. You know, you think about mm -hmm. all those Romanian uh, orphans, you know, who didn't, who were, per who were who physically provided for, but weren't touched. Right. And it really messed them up. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, not being touched, not having physical contact with someone is incredibly difficult. And yeah. um, I, I completely understand why, you know, people have a tough time social distancing. Yeah. And it's there's, just, it's the worst. There's a real, <clears throat> I mean, irony here, because six months ago, before this happened, we were decrying the end of boredom. That no one's ever bored anymore. You you yeah. if you have to mm. wait in line at a doctor's office, you're on your phone. Kids right. kids no one kids never. Um, and you know I remember Andrew Sullivan wrote that article about distraction and church. And one of the things about going to church was that you were there were boring stretches or at least mm -hmm. passive stretches, long uh, times where you didn't, there was silence. And I remember thinking, gosh, wouldn't that be great? And then, you know, too much of a good thing. Good God, this is a, a lot of, of that. Um, but he was saying that, you know, without silence, without inactivity, it's hard. It's just a bunch of white noise. It's very difficult for faith to be born. Um, and now we have the sort of opposite issue going on. And look at our... Um, yeah, the undulations of, of human activity and, and the fact that the, the, the ignorance of sort of what's coming next is, is mind-boggling kind of as, as we sit here saying that we're, we're bored because it, it really, the, the tenor, and it, I've write about it in Seculosity too, like the, we were so distracted and so justified by our busyness that um, we couldn't think straight, we couldn't love in that a scenario either. And I remember when this pandemic first began, there was in some some of us when we were being more honest, there was a there was a relief to, to, to having a little more time, a little more space. Totally. And now um now is sort of you want anything but that. So I, I loved what I really loved what David had to say about the, the herbicide and that for first world uh, people, first world Christians who are been raised on a sort of a go, 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 never stop 24 seven, prove yourself, be busy, uh, keep going. This uh, maybe God's grace is at work, even even if it feels painful. Um, well, we're going to switch gears kind of dramatically here and we're going to talk about the real white fragility this is a uh, piece that Ross Douthat wrote in the New York Times that got sent our way quite a bit. 
And it is, you know, like anything talking about uh, race right now, and especially this topic of white fragility, it's, it's, it's controversial, but there, there's something, it, it put forward a thesis that relates, in fact, to the doing and the uh, nonstop striving that I was, that I th- found to be quite compelling. This is what he writes. He says, the, the scholar Peter Turchin of the University of Connecticut, uh, his work on the cycles of American history may have predicted this year's unrest, the, so, the, the social and racial unrest. He has a phrase that describes part of what he's talking about when he says, the overproduction of elites. In other words, we've had a surplus of smart young Americans pursuing admission to a narrow list of elite colleges whose enrollment doesn't expand with uh, the population. And then these meritocrats, uh, these you know, high-achieving young people, graduate into a big city ecosystem where the price of adult goods like schools and housing has been bid up dramatically, while important cultural industries, especially academia and journalism, supply fewer jobs, even in good economic times. And they live half in these crowded, over-competitive worlds and half on the internet, which has extended the competition for status almost infinitely and weakened Mm. some of the normal ways that local prestige might compensate for disappointing income. These stresses have exposed the thinness of meritocracy as a culture. Gosh, I can literally think of people as you're reading this. Okay, sorry, (laughs) keep going. (laughs) But if your bourgeois order is built on a cycle of competition and reward, and the competition gets fiercer while the rewards diminish, then instead of young people hooking up safely on the way to a lucrative job and dual-income marriage with 2.1 kids, you'll get young people set adrift, unable to pair off, postponing marriage permanently while they wait for a stability that never comes. Which brings us to the subject invoked in this column's title, the increasing appeal to these unhappy young people and to their parents and educators as well of an emergent ideology that accuses many of them of embodying white privilege and of being fragile if they object or disagree. Part of this ideology's appeal is clearly about meaning and morality. The new anti-racism has a confessional religious energy that the secular meritocracy has always lacked. There's an urgency to it. And there's a truth to it, I think. But there's also something important about its more radical elements. Here he goes. Imagine yourself as a relatively privileged white person, exhausted by meritocracy. An overworked student, or a fretful parent, or a school administrator constantly besieged by both. Wouldn't it come as a relief, in some way, if it turned out that the whole exhausting rat race of full-time meritocratic achievement was nothing more than a manifestation of the very white supremacy that you, as a good liberal, are obliged to dismantle and oppose? If all the testing, all the delayed gratification and perfectionism was, after all, just a form of racism and an easing up, chilling out, and just relaxing a little bit, you can improve your life and your kid's life and happily strike an anti-racist blow as well. And if the avowed intention of the moment is to challenge white fragility, and yet lots of white people seem strangely enthusiastic about the challenge, it's worth considering that maybe a different kind of fragility is in play. The stress and unhappiness felt by meritocracy's strivers, who may be open to a revolution that seems to promise more stability and less exhaustion, and ask them only to denounce the whiteness of a system that's made even its most successful participants feel fragile and existentially depressed. This is, um, again, it's touchy. Uh, it's difficult to talk about. What he's saying is um, he's, he's trying to figure out why it is that an uh, uh, ideology that seems to um, impl- Im- implicate uh, white people has become so incredibly popular among them. And is it because are they exhausted by the structures in which they're living, which are predominantly meritocratic uh, uh, things that don't never seem to deliver what they promise. Um, it's an interesting thesis. What did what did the two of you think about it? Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of people I'm just going with who are like, there's deep rage. They can't get those um, seminary positions that they always thought they would get. You know, I mean, I remember being in seminary and thinking, not everyone is going to be able to be a New Testament professor, you know what I mean? So like, what are all these people going to do? Um, and now I, you know, we're, gosh, how long have I been ordained? Um, seven years. And, um, and, and there's deep rage about like how little money they're making or, you know, that they've had to take jobs that they didn't want. I mean, these are the same people who are like the white fragility thing is like very much 
a part of their online narrative. I mean, this, gosh, Dave, I mean, the stuff you said about um, not kind of having the professional success that was desired. And so then kind of almost making up for it in like the Twitter universe um, is that's a very real phenomenon. Um, You know, I think the white fragility stuff is, is really important. And also I think race is not the only thing that's happening in that scenario seems to be what this writer is suggesting. And I think that's a, that's a very uncomfortable um, assertion, but I think it's definitely one that we should be looking at. I, I, because I, it's more than just like our righteousness that leads us into these conversations. Does that make sense? Like it's, <laughs> yes, you know I, what I, I mean? It's perfect sense. Yeah. It's more than just our, I wish it was just our righteousness. I wish it was just our, our hope for our black brothers and sisters that they would be um, treated fairly um, and that we would look at the history of systemic racism. It's like, I wish it were all of those things, but it's, 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 it's more than just our goodwill that causes us to jump into this. And that's a very un- unpopular probably thing for us to explore, but it's an interesting assertion. I was struck by that too, Sarah, just the the cynical, but I think very true insight that unfortunately, most of the time, um, behind ideology and idealism is self-interest, you know, a lot yeah. of the time, Unf- unfortunate, unfortunate, and some in some yeah. way, shape or form, and that it is um, incredibly difficult and probably honestly sort of a miracle um, when anyone is ever really genuinely altruistic. Or sort of, you know, uh, unconditionally um, loving and giving in any kind of way. I don't think we know know anybody who is because whenever we have those like sort of... Jesus. Well, Jesus, (laughs) Jesus. that's it. But like whenever we have these kind of figures that are, that, that get kind of put up that way, then like they have these... You know, I think about Mr. Rogers having these like beautiful stories of his own interpersonal struggle and brokenness. Like I think like that's, you know, I think, but the thing with, with some of this, um, white fragility stuff happening with white people is that there's no room in the conversation for, for that, for, for, to talk about like that maybe some, maybe some of what leads us to this is our own woundedness and our own bitterness about our own lives. Well, going into this moment, we were talking about so much, uh, people are so unhappy. I mean, so Mm -hmm. deeply unhappy across the Mm -hmm. board and so lonely. And, um, Mm -hmm. there's to ignore that's that, Partly, there's an, there is a legitimate urgency to the unrest that we're experiencing, but there's also a spiritual allure to it uh, because it gives p- a purpose. And, and there are some undeniable dynamics. Sarah, we were also talking about another article that appeared from Kat Rosenfeld in Tablet Magazine where she put quotes from the White Fragility book right next to Rachel Hollis quotes and saying, why do, are these both Gosh. appealing to the same demographic that is just drunk on self-improvement. And it's partly because the narratives around, she was saying that the self-improvement pitch is always that you are so screwed up that your wiring needs to be ripped out. And here's another way to do it. Here's some more work you can do on yourself. And um, it was, it's a, it's actually a pretty good article that doesn't in any way invalidate the diagnosis that there is serious, serious problems with how um, an unconscious bias around issues of race, and yet um, what about it is being instrumentalized for the sake of our uh, self-justification um, mm-hmm. or, and, and even it, self-loathing? Well, and I think, like, I, th- I mean, I have to read the last paragraph of that piece because okay, yeah. it's so good. Um she writes, and while protesters pour into the streets, raise their voices, and lobby their representatives to change the status quo, self-help social justice encourages too many of these highly educated, financially secure, socially liberal, and politically engaged women who, not for nothing, make up one of the nation's most influential voting blocks to take themselves out of the equation. Instead, at this pivotal moment in our nation's history in an election year, they are dutifully doing, quote unquote, the work of staring at their own unflattering reflections forever on a journey to nowhere, 
unpacking and repacking the invisible knapsack, journaling through their guilt while the world burns outside. I mean, that was such a, <laughs> when I, I, that hit me so hard. Can I have a drink? Um, yeah. Cause I'm on my own journey with my own knapsack. Um, <laughs> I mean, it hit me really hard. Like it really did kind of pull me off of social media in some ways, because I think, you know, I think Dave about what I think your dad wrote this in grace and practice, you know, that we have to repent even for our own repentance. Mm. And I think there's a certain element of that here that we're just (laughs) white people are just unwilling to do. Um, I don't know. Arge. You're super white. What do you have to say about being fragile? So white. I appreciate you're fragile. You're fragile as well. That doesn't mean you're not well, fragile. I mean, I mean, the whole thing about college admissions, um, it hits home, right? Because I have a son who just went through the whole process and um, by all accounts kind of played the game the way it was supposed to be played and ticked every box, you know, um, without going into specifics. And yet... Um, sort of, you know, wasn't or was not offered admission to very many of sort of the highly selective schools that he should have been a good candidate for, you know, and is going to a really good school, but not to, you know, the kind of place that, you know, one would expect with his quote unquote credentials, which is a ridiculous thing to say. Um, and I wrestle with that because there is, there is like a little bit of anger, honestly, like the kid worked so hard and did so much. And I felt like he, deserved more. And yet there's also like a little bit of a relief in it all, you know, that he's sort of in some ways getting, getting off the hamster wheel and is going to have a little bit more, I don't know, what do I want to say, broad experience or something like that. And then combine that with the fact that the second semester of his senior year was in the middle of the pandemic, which is also going to cover his freshman year of college. And that, you know, as he said to me at one point, like nothing is going the way it's supposed to go. You know, mm. everything is sort of messed up. And I was like, yeah, that's true. And then I thought about that and I was like, you know, Jack, um, I hate to say it, but that's the way life is going to be. Like, that's the way life is. It's just unpredictable. And you you think you know, or you, you've, you've been told that things are supposed to go a certain way and it's just not true. But what you'll find is that the way it goes is actually the way it's supposed to go. And you don't understand it in the moment, but you understand it afterwards and that God works not in the midst of things going according to plan, but in the midst of things not going according to plan. Um, but yeah, a lot of this, uh, it hits home in a, in a personal way about what he deserves, what we deserve, quote unquote. Um, and uh, I don't know, the, some of that, the hurt, but also the guilt at being like, this is absurd, this is ridiculous, like how, how dare I feel this way? Like we're so privileged and blessed in so many ways. Um, it's It's been a very strange time. Mm. Well, there's something deeply, not just exhausting, but deceptive and cruel about the um, kind of some of the meritocratic promises and the meritocratic, let's face it, gospel that many of us mm. were brought up on. If you just work hard enough, you will get this. And it, it's, it's been deeply cruel to people of color and it's also yes. been cruel to you know our own children and us and and folks who grow up and say I thought this was this I was this was supposed to make me happy and I'm not happy. I thought this was um, I was supposed to delay marriage. I thought I was supposed to um, delay children. And here I am, uh, totally miserable at the age of you know whatever it is. And um, I along comes a an explanation for part of what is what is what is going on that it, you know I I think it's um. I find it very empath- empathetic or empath- empathizing while also accounting for some of the, um, you know, almost self-flagellation that I'm witnessing, um, especially among f- folks that are always told that they're not enough and constantly need to be <laughs> need to be sort of perpetuating more of that in the world and uh, this never-ending hole of um, be do better, work harder, uh, live stronger. Um, I don't know. I, I'm very interested to see how this all shakes out. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I don't know what the answer is. I, it's it's funny I, when I hear you talk about, I mean, I think that's really important to say is that this whole, whole idea of meritocracy is long impacted. I mean, the black community, especially, and there was a great, fascinating article this week. The There's a, a man, um, I think he's 
88 years old or he's in his early 90s who lives in D.C. and he's one of the last children of a slave. And he, so his dad just <laughs> uh, had like six kids in his like 60s and 70s basically. Um, and, um, but this this gentleman talked about kind of the way he was raised that, you know, if you basically work twice as hard as white people, you were going to, you were going to make it. And that there was a, a real narrative of pride and strength that was really beautiful that his parents, you could tell, were definitely trying to impute to him as a means of survival. And then that just a lot of that wasn't true. And a lot of that fell apart. Um, and he was certainly, um, a, this guy's accomplished in his own right and has done remarkable things, but it was very, um, powerful to hear him say that from his perspective it if he feels like the country could easily slip back into a lot of that stuff that was really dangerous and scary um and so i think you know when we when we start to look at white fragility i get so bored with it because mm -hmm. i think that there are much bigger, scarier things happening for black yes. people than my stupid white lady journey. I, yes. I, I'm at the point with all this discussion where I feel it's it, the book should be retitled and I, um, upper class fragility I, yeah. or middle upper upper middle class fragility. Or you've got a lot of time because on your hands, we're fragility. not <laughs> we're not referring to the the people smoking the Marlboros outside. And you clearly need a job, uh, fragility. Right. I, what what right. I mean, Four children. No, but I'm serious. So I think social class yeah. is the great uh, thing that's not yeah. being talked about and yeah. that is a divide that is um where there's an enormous amount of enmity and, and in fact the, the extent to which we're not talking about it means it's that powerful right. and the church is one of the things that actually that does span the social the socioeconomic divides at least in yeah. in certain aspects um because I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm even... Not even, perfectly, but more than most, yeah. let's say that. <laughs> well, let's end with a story of incredible hope and grace in practice. And uh, in fact, I, I would say it's a, an example of, RJ, what you were just talking about, about how um, God sort of over the long term using uh, all things. I think that was the lectionary mm -hmm. passage, you know, all things for good. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is, comes from John Lewis. John Lewis, the Alabama congressman and activist who died a couple weeks ago, or I think about 10 days ago. And this is his last book from Across the, uh, uh, it's, uh, Across the Bridge, A Vision for Change and the Future of America. And this is an excerpt from that book. Um, now, maybe you're aware of the story, but I thought it would be interesting to read his, his words. Uh, he's talking about um, the, when he was uh, doing the Freedom Rider uh, protests and, uh, in the 60s. This brings to mind the one and only attacker of the 40 times I was arrested and jailed who apologized to me for his actions. Mm. Almost 48 years after that now freedom ride stop in Rock Hill, South Carolina, that left Albert Bigelow and me so badly bruised and bloodied, Elwin Wilson, one of our attackers, wanted to come meet me. I welcomed him to Washington, and as we sat, Wilson looked deep into my eyes, searching my expression and said he was the person who had beaten me in Rock Hill in May of 1961. He said, I am sorry about what I did that day. Will you forgive me? Without a moment of hesitation, I looked back at him and said, I accept your apology. This man who had physically and verbally assaulted me was now seeking my approval. This was a great testament to the power of love to overcome hatred. Wilson has said publicly that he is glad to be able to count me as a friend today, and he has expressly mentioned his gratitude that we did not press charges that day. His life and the life of his family could have been changed forever if South Carolina had actually tried and convicted him. But beyond that, had he been tried, it would have added a layer of justification to the rationalization that always accompanies guilt. If he had been publicly vindicated, which would have been the likely outcome, it would have been more difficult for him to come to the point where he eventually believed an apology was in order, and more difficult for him to feel love. Elwin Wilson has also said that he was glad we did not have any weapons that day. If Albert Bigelow and I had inflicted harm in Rock Hill, we would have fueled the flames of violence instead of putting them out. Any sense of remorse would have had to compete with the fire of anger. Instead of a possible reconciliation, revenge would have been the product of that violent confrontation in Rock Hill. 
But because we met this man in love and offered him our respect despite his obvious hatred, it gave him nothing to justify his anger. He left that day only to review it in his mind so many times over the years. The resonance of our innocence made room in his own soul for the realization that he needed to ask for forgiveness. I was surprised to hear him clearly restate, 48 years later, the essence of what I had said to the police officer as I declined to press charges almost half a century earlier. This is what Lewis said. He said, we're not here to cause trouble. We're here so that people will love each other. That was how he put it. The impact we left was undeniable. What Owen Wilson did took courage. He could have simply made amends in his heart, but to publicly put aside his differences and admit his error is unique and bold. By doing this, he demonstrated so poignantly for all to see that love, that love that opens its arms to help heal the pain of another's suffering, not violence and self-defense, has the power to ultimately disarm the attacker, preserve his or her integrity, and enable the truth to do its work. Love that meets the separating action of violence with forgiveness affirms that our ultimate and eternal unity is transformative. The thing um, about this that I'll say, and then I really, I'm not sure I have anything else to say that really stuck out to me, is this idea that, um, and this is a very popular notion kind of in mainline Protestant Christianity these days, is to tell people that they didn't do anything wrong. Mm. Um, and that, that, John Lewis so wisely points out that had that man gone to trial and had he been cleared, it would have been hard for him to have known love. Right. And I think there's that idea that, um, that we feel like we're, we're doing somebody a favor when they tell them they didn't, we tell them they didn't do anything wrong and that it, it almost serves as like a, a theological barrier to the love of God you know, and it's so much more powerful to let people kind of come to the conclusion on their own and to not try to say in one direction or the other. I mean, it reminds me so much. It makes me think right of the, the eulogy Tyler Perry gave at Whitney Houston's funeral, you know, like where he tried to like make her feel better about her life. And she was like, no, no, (laughs) (laughs) no, no, you know? And then she says, but my Lord and savior, Jesus Christ is amazing grace. Um, I yeah I mean I I think for me this almost speaks to the white fragility thing a little bit because it's like you need to acknowledge where you are and I think honestly it's why what RJ said was really powerful because I think we need to acknowledge our frustrations even if they do come out of our privilege and then I think we need to 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 ask for forgiveness and I think we need to to move into whatever's next and I I think that's why I get really frustrated about some of the stuff in this and it's a movement really of of a lot of it is my peers it's like white ladies in their 30s um we're a genre um but that the whole project just becomes about the self instead of uh, and, 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 and a deep reluctance to actually admit like sin, our own sin, and then to move on from it. Right. Like our sin's not as interesting as we think it is. And God would, would really prefer we ask for forgiveness and move on from it. So anyway, I talked a lot, but I, I do, I think that's a very powerful theological takeaway is, is we have to be, we have to be given the space to admit that we've done something wrong in order to know love. Well, first of all, it just, it, it brings to mind what both Jesus and Paul say about getting involved in lawsuits and basically how no good you know, no good comes out of them. Would you know what does Paul say? I hear there are lawsuits among you. Would you not rather be wronged? Like, isn't it better just to be wronged than to get involved yeah. in a lawsuit? Like, not, you know, and the reminder that in our current legal system, you you literally can't apologize once you get in, involved in and anyway, whatever. That's neither here nor there. What this story feels like is one of those instances where the kingdom of God breaks through into our murky, muddy, sinful world, right? Because you want to look at the story and be like, yes, this is what we need. This is how it happens. This is the answer. But as he says, this is the one person, (laughs) the one person that apologized to me in my 40 years, that when it happens, it's this miracle and this reminder of the power of God and the power of love and the power of forgiveness and repentance 
and yet it it's like um it's it's like uh, uh, seeing dimly through a mirror or something. It's just like this ray of light breaking into our darkness, where you say, "Yes, that's the truth. That's why I believe what I believe, even though I know that ninety nine percent of the time it doesn't go that way." Um, it reminded me of a podcast I was listening to this week. Um, Radio Lab's been doing a series of stories on the nineteen eighteen pandemic, and oh, yeah. kind of um, and one of the stories was about the end of World War One. When Woodrow Wilson, the then president of the United States, and the prime minister of France were trying to hammer out um, how they were going to deal with Germany in the wake of World War One, And Woodrow Wilson, for all of his many, many faults, was saying, we have to forgive them. We have to forgive them. We have, we have to let this go. We can't, if we, if we um, take them to task and make them pay us back and and if we put them down it's just gonna, it's going to perpetuate the cycle of violence that we've been enduring for the last hundred years and he fought and fought but the prime minister of france was like no what my country has been through we need to put germany in their place and do everything we can to exact as as high a toll as we possibly can from them we, we need revenge basically we need revenge and then apparently woodrow wilson got the pandemic got the flu and kind of lost his mind um, and the way they went was the way of the, the French prime minister, which a lot of scholars think directly led to the rise of the Nazi party and World War II and the 60 million more dead. Mm. Um, but that when forgiveness happens, it's a miracle, and it's, it's, the only, it's the only possibility for healing. It's the only possibility for healing, right? Mm. That, that um, uh, lawsuits and, and um, punitive measures can never heal. You know, they may be able to bring about some measure of justice, but I'm not sure that they can heal. Yeah, I mean, this is it. It it, it pushes on. You know, um, when we had Daryl Davis speak, that who's made a lifetime, uh, really mission, the musician, a black musician who's who befriends Ku Klux Klan members and sort of loves them into. Um, Loves them into leaving. Loves them into leaving. It, it you know, <laughs> I remember people saying, "Oh, that kind of makes white people feel better about themselves to to watch this thing." And I was thinking, like, maybe, but let's just be, give thanks that it ever that anything like this ever happens. Ever happens. But <laughs> but right. what also like Daryl Davis isn't like trying to make white people p- feel better about themselves. Like, sure, maybe, but like his like what actually where's his heart in this? Do you know what I mean? Like his heart is that he genuinely like sees other people in a way that I am entirely unable as beloved children of God, even people who hate him and he seeks a sibling relationship with them. He, he, That's incredible. He leads, who cares he leads what white with love. people think? I don't care. I just care what he does. He leads with love. <laughs> it reminds me of the definition of Puritan. You know, Puritan is someone who's worried that someone somewhere might be having a good time. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know? It's like secular Puritanism. Oh like, my gosh, I love that. But yeah. the anyway. other thing I was thinking about is that uh, is that forty eight years. It took forty eight years for this man yeah. to um, for and it, it, Lewis keeps saying and, uh, to Moses give him if we'd if we'd if we'd had weapons if we'd pressed charges we would have taken away the room like what we would mm. call sort of the Holy Spirit's wor- work and the, the um, we would have taken away the room for this to 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 take place this um, s- this waiting. sorrow and forty eight years is a long time and 48 years uh we, we want uh apologies to if someone hurts my feelings i want it to happen i, I, I want an apology i want recompense right now and I, i'm tired <laughs> yes. of waiting and i and i'm not i'm not and i'm not speaking as an avatar for my race i'm just talking about david zoll if if someone cuts me off in traffic i want this to be made right immediately yeah. And or if my if I get into a fight with my wife and we act like non soulmates, I want to 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 get the uh, to, to get the the credit. Restore balance in the universe. <laughs> the uh, so forty eight years, but it also made me think of you know this this passage from Romans that we were reading about how God just works to get all things for the good of those who love Him, and. Uh, Paul Walker was giving a sermon about this, and he was talking about how it's like a the bottom of like an Oriental rug. You know, if you've ever looked at the bottom of one, like a real one, not like a factor, like a you know, not a not a not an IKEA one. If you if you turn it over the rug, it 
just looks like chaos and you can't mm. tell what's going on. It looks ugly and haphazard and random. And then if you turn it over, you see this beautiful pattern. And um, while we may not always get a glimpse of that beautiful pattern, in this case, it appears that John Lewis did get a glimpse of it and it moved him so much that he wanted to share it in his final book as a picture of healing for America that wasn't instantaneous, but it was heartfelt and it was not... Um, it was not uh, uh, coerced. That, and that's the fact that it wasn't coerced. And he did everything. The, the more, much more difficult thing to do, by the way, is to, to say, we're not here to cause trouble. We're here to love to, so that people will love one another. That's a lot harder than yeah. to bring the baseball bats and the, uh, you know, the socks full of pennies and things like that. So I, I was just struck by the, by the time period. 48 years, I mean, that man could have died. That man could have uh, had dementia himself, had it could have caught COVID, you know, who knows? And yet the work of God was not contained to just 1961. It was ongoing. And the, the testimony of this, frankly, pretty amazing man, and everything I've read from John Lewis is, uh, is kind of blessed me in this, but it's, it's his testament to the ideas of Dr. King, ultimately, that, uh, you know, hate is too great a burden to bear all, and that stuff, which is profoundly Christian. I mean, that's, that's, that's Jesus hanging on the cross. So um, let's leave it there. That's um, a lot to take in. Uh, I hope you guys go uh, light up your cigarettes right after we hang up. <clears throat> it's a great cure for boredom. As the Lord intended. And just as long as it's not vaping. Uh, <laughs> we'll we'll speak in it. We're too classy for vaping. <laughs> we'll we'll speak in it in, in, in a little while. Uh, I don't know exactly when that'll be, but hopefully before uh, sometime next month. And uh, just a note to people that my father's book, Peace in the Last Third of Life, is now out in hardback and audiobook read by him. So it's uh, if anyone is you're dealing with the last third of life or just simply life in general, I, c- I cannot commend it to you enough. That's available where, where books are sold. Um, but until we speak again, may our resounding uh, aspiration be that we're not here to cause trouble. We're here that those would mm. love each other and that God would uh, love us in the midst of our failure to, uh, to live up to that. Um, thank you both. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Dave. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord.